Hi, I'm Amy Silverman, and I'm the co-curator of Barflies, the live reading series held at Valley Bar in downtown Phoenix. Each month, we give writers a theme and invite them to tell their true stories on stage. This episode's theme is Rescue Me. Trisha Parker takes a rear view of motherhood in our first piece, Booty Call. If there is an opposite of Munchausen syndrome, medical intervention avoidance syndrome, my ex has it. Once, he nearly cut his index finger off at work. I never saw the to the bone slice because he fashioned a length of PVC pipe to fit over it. (laughs) Then he hermetically sealed the pipe with layers of duct tape. (laughs) Emergency room? Shmemergency room. He eventually removed it to reveal clean, soft flesh with a hairline scar that curled and still curls around his finger like a smile. See, he gloated, good as new. (laughs) Zach, our son, was a hearty, healthy kid like me. He distrusts religion, and like his dad, he distrusts medicine. He ended up with a chronic disease, type 1 diabetes, and he ended up a mathematician. Type 1 is basically a disease managed by numbers and formulas, carbohydrate grams and insulin boluses. Zach loved his pediatric endocrinologist. But when that guy retired, Zach refused to find another, ever. He patches together his care with a semi-retired, laid-back, primary care physician here in town and a series of campus health centers. He wears a state-of-the-art insulin pump and a continuous glucose monitor but he won't take two Advil. He thinks medical intervention is often unnecessary and usually stupid. He thinks he can manage things better himself. Still, he has this disease. So when he called me during his senior year of undergrad and announced, I need surgery, my mind went right to disaster. A foot? An eye? Oh, I know there are way shittier parents than I. When I was devastated and self-blaming at the hospital after Zach's diagnosis, that wise old pediatric endocrinologist, Dr. Hassan, reassured me that our 12-year-old's 10-pound weight loss and nearly 500 blood sugar wasn't that bad. For some parents, he said, the first clue is when they can't wake up their kid. I looked at him puzzled. Coma, the doctor whispered. 
assuring me that I wasn't in that club. Still, I'm hypersensitive about what I perceive to be Zach's fragility and about my culpability. And I suspect that my hypersensitivity breeds secrecy in him. What are you talking about? I demanded. Uh, I need surgery, he said in that mad-making, lilting, mocking, question-intoned way. And a referral, can you call Dr. J? A referral for what, to who, what the hell are you talking about? Big, big sigh on his end. On his end is a pun only he would appreciate at this point in the story. <laughs> he begrudgingly explained, so my freshman year, I had this thing. And it would get better, and it would get worse, and now it keeps getting worse. And they put me on antibiotics, and then they put me on stronger antibiotics, and the nurse says they can't do anything for me anymore, and I need surgery. A nurse at NAU's Campus Health Center. Wait. His freshman year? He's a senior. Oh my God, it is a foot. Do kids only keep really big secrets for a really long time from really shitty parents? Zach, what infection have you had for three years? Bigger, big sigh. Jesus, mother, it's my ass crack, okay? And I burst into laughter because I was so relieved. <laughs> and ass cracks are funny. <laughs> and I knew exactly what was wrong with him. You have a pilonidal cyst, don't you? Mom, you're being kind of a dick. <laughs> I can't believe you're laughing. But I could tell in his voice that he knew and agreed yes. It was funny, like funny in theory, but not in his ass. <laughs> a pilonidal cyst is basically the Michael Phelps of ingrown hairs. <laughs> it's a giant, hairy, sebaceous, oozy, pussy, bloody infection ball a ball of infection that grows or amasses or whatever into the body at the base of the spine. Pylonidal cysts, like a lot of gross things, are common among young men. <laughs> there are risk factors, but Zach had none of those. What he had and didn't know was a cysty family history. My dad used to call it his vestigial tail. <laughs> he, 
He still talks about how the good people at St. Olaf's College Campus Medical Center operated on his cyst back in the 50s. He used to terrorize us with this monkey tail story. Who knows if a pilonidal cyst is the remnants of a tail? But it is just about where a tail would be. My dad. He can turn any conversation into a conservatives are the worst rant. He loves to talk about his cyst. <laughs> you know who else had a pilonidal cyst? Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> That's how he got out of serving. Donald Trump had bone spurs. What a bunch of horseshit. But my secretive, modest kid had to force himself to work up the courage to talk to a nurse about this nastiness, to pull down his pants and bear all, totally vulnerable. I called Dr. J for that referral to, not kidding, Dr. Brown, <laughs> the proctologist. <laughs> I told my brother, who had long ago fulfilled his own obligation to our family's primitive prophecy that at least one male in each generation should bear this scar tissue tramp stamp. <laughs> Dr. Brown, he's the best. That's who did my surgery, was his enthusiastic endorsement. <laughs> now that I found someone to cut it out, will you show it to me? I asked Zach. Hell no, no way, shut up, he said. <laughs> Finally, Zach was impatient, but that's not how medical intervention works. First the consult, then the pre-surgery appointment, lots of conversations with doctors. We both looked around Dr. Brown's waiting room knowing that these mostly geriatric patients all had smelly, horrifying ass malfunctions. <laughs> it was a lot for a 21-year-old kid in skinny jeans. <laughs> and just like that, Zach's Viking-like forbearance vanished. He paced in front of the elevator after the consult. What's wrong? I asked stupidly. Zach's particular slice of pecan pie had melted and burst through his skin. Dr. Brown would need to flay him open and power wash his crack. <laughs> I need to get out of here, and I want this thing out of me, he said. And he, who has his dad's exact walk and chicken legs, and anxious nail biting, never reminded me so much of his father as he did in that moment. But there is no PVC pipe for the crack, right? <laughs> Zach was released to me post-surgery high, cursing giddily with instructions. Patient's open wound is packed with 50 meters of gauze. Wound is impossible for patient to see, but patient should keep wound clean and dry. 
Wound will bleed and ooze for months or what seems like forever. Hold your pointer fingers and thumbs in a diamond shape. This is approximately the size and shape of the patient's wound. Too enormous to stitch. Here are some maxi pads. After a Chipotle burrito and a long nap, Zach wanted a shower. I rigged up a bottle with diluted Hibiclens solution so he could squirt clean his wound. Genius. Knock, knock. I'm supposed to sit in a bath, he said through the door. But a little later, he called me into his room, a towel around his waist. Ooh, maybe, I thought. I hoped. Instead, he asked, how do I use these? And threw the maxi pads on the bed like they were used. <laughs> I laughed a lot. But I also sincerely showed him how to peel off the sticky protector. I was stumped, though, by how to adhere the pad effectively to boxer shorts. Is it weird that I wanted so badly to see it? Can I see it now? I asked him the next day. I haven't seen Zach naked since his pre-hairy days, so I knew the answer. He ignored me. Zach, please let me see it. I need to make sure it's healing. Come on, I'm your mom. He ignored me harder, clearly. He is incredible at ignoring. Can your Uncle Pat at least look at it, please? My brother from before, he's a registered nurse. Whatever, fine, Zach finally agreed. So Uncle Pat stopped by while I was at work. He texted me afterward. Damn, Doc Brown took out a fair chunk of swampy real estate. <laughs> Looks good, though. Thumbs up emoji. <laughs> I never saw and barely knew about Zach's years-long infection. I never saw the gaping wound left by its removal. I have not seen and we'll probably never see the scar. Zach's huge, bright pink, diamond-shaped b-hole, as he calls it, <laughs> scar. It's not your b-hole, I correct him when he says this. Close enough, he counters. There was nothing I could do for my kid to fix his immune system or his pancreas. I did not think to save cord blood or harvest stem cells. I didn't plan for all the possibilities, all the things that might go wrong, that did go wrong. But I am not the shittiest parent. I did other things. I found Dr. Brown. I got him that post-surgery burrito. <laughs> I took care of the copay. I showed my son how to use a maxi pad. <laughs> the, 
Then I bought him a shit ton of new boxers from The Gap, the best ones with bananas and avocados and dachshunds wearing winter scarves. <laughs> Zach won't let me look at the place where the melty pecan pie used to be. We don't trust religion, but I have to trust that my son's ass crack is as good as new. That was Trisha Parker. Next in Do I Pray for Salvation from This Bastard? Aaron Kimball Sanit takes on a housemate that none of us will ever forget. I looked at you and I thought, shit, Sean, you are some kind of son of a bitch like I have never seen. Every instinct I have as a good journalist tells me not to start any story with a quote or even a thought. But as soon as I saw your troll's form emerge from your bedroom, I began writing the story in my head, and it began as such. I had never met you, but already I felt I knew you. You who, at 10 p.m. on the night of Monday, the 21st of May, year of our Lord, 2018, were sloshed, fucked, plastered, ossified, drunk. You held in your hand a mostly empty bottle of Seagram's gin. Disgusting choice. And you were on your and on your head you wore a pair of headphones from which I could hear blaring the kind of nineties white angst indie music you soon discovered that we both loved. I said hello. You garbled something between an acknowledgement and an inquisition. And I returned an introduction. I'm here on a business reporting fellowship. I was always careful not to say internship to appear wise beyond my years for the Dallas Morning News. You told me with a sort of cadence that made me think you were hard of hearing or learning English or both, that you were Sean, you were an attorney from Minneapolis by way of Austin, and you were working contract jobs. You had lived in one of six different rooms in this Airbnb for 10 months, and that you were drunk. I had figured that out by then, you offered me a drink. I accepted and began mixing a weak gin and tonic. You called me a pussy. You dumped it out and inverted the proportions in a new glass. By 2 a.m., there was so much quinine in your system that you and all your future children, should you ever find a woman who doesn't hate you, would be forever immune from malaria. <laughs> By 2.30 a.m., I already knew you more than anybody else I would meet that summer in Texas's nasal cavity, a term I coined for Dallas because it's a damp, congested place that smells, <laughs> as does a nasal cavity. <laughs> we were talking about music for a while, which gave me the first indications that we had something in common. But then you were crying, you were sobbing lamentations about your lot in life as a 38-year-old attorney on weekly Airbnb leases with bad credit and a drinking problem and an ex-girlfriend you cheated on while on study abroad in Morocco 20 years ago. <laughs> I hate myself for it every day, you said. I said it seems 
like a relationship gone sour is a weak excuse to be drunk crying to a 21-year-old stranger. You said that wasn't the only reason or even the main one. Mostly, you were drunk crying because you were an alcoholic, you said, which I felt was self-evident. On that night, the first night that you ever met me, you told me, I obviously don't have a son, but if I did, I would want him to be like you, so I'm telling you, don't end up like me. You wore that admonition like a suit of broken armor against an onslaught of total moral decay. I know it was broken because you felt it bore repeating dozens of times, though every time I said you had already told me that, you denied it. But I grew to admire you nonetheless. Every day I would come home after 10 hours of fluffing Dallas's captains of industry, a job I hated from day one. And you would be there engaged in a losing rebellion against society's standards from our roachy dining room. You would quiz me in my knowledge of bands that you grew up with and I listened to. Dinosaur Jr., Built to Spill, Jay Riotard, with whom you said you did a line of coke in a Tennessee bathroom some decades ago. We laughed and kvetched about adulthood, relationships, and the passers-through in the other bedrooms. You still spoke longingly of the girl you jilted, and of your family in Minnesota, of me, because I, to you, was a sort of proxy for a younger version of you with a higher standard of living. I would drive us in your car to bars and taco shops. One Sunday, we got brunch, and you got so drunk, fucked up, you might say, that you forgot where you were and started smoking inside. We came home, and you fell asleep on the couch watching Anthony Bourdain. You were a great big drunk boulder in the stream of strangers coming in and out of our Airbnb the only constant in mine and these people's lives for whatever duration of time we were stranded at 818 Owenson's Drive. You scared me often. Like when you tomahawked your daily bottle of Seagram's at a big fucking cockroach on the wall as if you were targeting all of the animus in your life. <laughs> or when you yelled at the lesbian couple living in one of the rooms for not wanting to go out with me, a desire of mine that never existed <laughs> but that you concocted and were sure of. <laughs> or, when you got so drunk that you tried to go into the wrong bedroom, found it locked, and went outside so you could break in through the window, at which point you realized your error. I found out this happened because the people staying in the room confronted you about it the next morning, but you were already too drunk to respond. So seeing me sitting next to you, they yelled at me instead. I understood. But then you were gone. I could never really figure out what you were running from when you threw your shit in the back of a Jetta one Sunday morning and drove back to the Twin Cities. Heading out of town for a while, you texted me. Maybe back, keep in touch, with an exclamation point at the end. The previous night, we had discussed Anthony Bourdain's death. It seemed to change you because he was living proof that you could be a fuck-up for two decades and a great man for the next two. 
you had no longer that justification for the chaos you introduced to your own life. I never should have been surprised you left, though, because you were always running. On that day, or others, though, I never knew what scared you so, what you were running from, until recently. I could realize that you weren't so confusing. Sure, you've had losses. Who hasn't? But mostly, you were a shitbird addict with no deeper imperative than finding more gin. For a while, I thought I was saving you, giving you a little faith in the youth and in yourself, on top of literally saving you from other roommates, cops, strangers, etc., etc. But that wasn't really true. You had lasted on your own in that house in South Dallas for 10 months, and you could have stayed 10 months more pickling yourself. If anything, I began to realize you were saving me in your way. You saved me from my illusions about the intellectualism of damaged masculinity. Gin blossomed grouches who create beautiful books and music used to entrance me and other sad young men. But when you were drunk, you weren't Hemingway. You were not a part of any lost generation as much as you were fucking independently lost. I saw in you a total embrace of apathy that we all must avoid. That's what you were running from, giving a shit. I still see your occasional Facebook posts, fractured ramblings about politics mostly, or Thai food, <laughs> the intersection thereof. One of the last texts you sent me reads, if you randomly fuck a 40-year-old lady in the ass in a bathroom stall downtown Minneapolis on your lunch break, period, and she calls you such a sweet boy while walking away, period, could that be a story? I'm not trying to be Bukowski, but I guess you just grow into it. If the shoe fits, Sean, wear it. That was Aaron Kimball Sanit. Now let's move on to Valeria Fernandez, who finds friendship in an unexpected place in Litros Kilos Metros. Sarah trembled, her eyes closed. Her small 18-year-old figure was there in the passenger seat of my car, but her mind was locked behind a closed door. She grabbed her head, a vein in her forehead was swelling. It was as if her thoughts were exploding. I was there in response to a desperate call. She said she was alone and afraid, deeply afraid. She said she needed someone to talk to. It was then at night, and I drove, I drove across town and picked her up. And I didn't know what to do next. Sara is from El Salvador and her story is familiar to me, and that's not her real name. She is many of hundreds of thousands of unaccompanied minors who have come to the United States from Central America. She left behind a childhood of abuse, bringing along the wounds of trauma. And once she arrived in this country, the mental health services that she needed badly were not always readily available. Back to that night, 
I was there and knowing that her immigration status was in limbo and had no health insurance, I had concerns about what inadvertent doors I might have opened if I took her to the emergency room. Will they keep her for the night? How will she afford it? Will they refer her to immigration authorities? It was also awkward for me because I'm a journalist and you don't typically get involved helping someone that at one point you may write about. But back then I thought she needed rescue and I acted on it. And with time, I realized that we both needed something else. It's been about four years since I know Sarah. And I met her by chance in the waiting room of an immigration attorney's office in Phoenix. I was working on a story about another kid. It was around 2014 and the World Football Cup, the World Soccer Cup was going on. And I made a joke about my country's soccer team, Uruguay, so I could break the ice. I said, soy de Uruguay, pero no muerdo. I'm from Uruguay, but I don't bite. And that's because we had a player that beat someone in the middle of a game. <laughs> and she laughed. I remember her black hair neatly pulled back and her square glasses that looked just a bit like mine. And impulsively she blurted, what kind of literature do you read? She told me she really liked a book called Mandingo. It is the story of an African slave in the southern United States who falls in love with his captor. At that point, all I knew was that she had come to the United States alone, and I suggested we keep in touch via Facebook, which seemed less personal than a phone number, because I was intrigued about her love for books, and I felt she might have a story to tell. A few days later, I'm writing, and her name pops up on my Facebook chat feed. She was curious about me. I explained I was a reporter doing research on unaccompanied youth coming from Central America, and I told her I had to get back to my writing. Another day, she was back in the chat talking about soccer, but quickly changed the subject big time. Can I ask you a question? Do you believe in God? She asked in Spanish. Yes, I said. Is it true that if you feel empty, God can feel that emptiness, she asked. It is a question that could take me hours to answer, I said. But I'm going to tell you what I humbly believe, she interrupted. I don't know if that's not true or if it's me that doesn't feel it. And then she went on. I don't have anything or anyone. I feel desperate for someone to listen to me. And that was the day I decided I just had to be her friend. Sarah and I, we went to bookstores together and the public library. I longed her books in Spanish. We went for Salvadoran food, pupusas, and talked about literature. She was jobless, jobless and lived with a family of a shelter staffer who had helped her. And she also had flashbacks of her past. She had strong headaches and would withdraw from conversation. She agreed with me that she needed help from a mental health specialist, but wouldn't dare ask her immigration attorney. So I did it for her. They looked for help, but it wasn't easy. 
Sarah didn't have an immigration status yet. That meant no health insurance, which meant she couldn't have access to affordable mental health services. Two months went by, and every night I would receive messages that she would send me to my cell phone, telling me about losing hope, or emoticons with tears pouring from their eyes. I gave her a number for a suicide hotline, and there were nights I was on the verge of calling it for her. Finally, through her attorney connections and the International Rescue Committee, they started offering her services. The IRC helped pay for six months of her rent. They also got her a job at a hotel as a maid. But still, with no health insurance, she couldn't get mental health services. It's great to have your basic needs, but you can succeed with the apartment, the refugee card, and a job, she said. You can't keep that up if you're not doing well emotionally. As time went by, I came to learn more about Sarah's past. Her mother left for the US when Sarah was three, and eventually um, she settled with Sarah's grandmother and her uncle in California. She never met her dad. As a young child, Sarah had lots of tiny curls, as she does now. In El Salvador, they call that type of hair Colocho. She spoke fast and a lot. That's because she felt adults didn't listen. And so when she got a chance to speak, she tried to get as much as she could. For a long time, she thought that her world was perfect. Until one day, she realized she wasn't. Sarah told me that she was sexually abused since she was eight. And I'm not going to talk about the details now. She had to share those with many other adults at different points in her life. And when she came to the US in front of an immigration judge. And that was nerve wracking because it will send her to a place where she didn't have control anymore. And it will trigger her. Still, she did it and she won her asylum case. But things didn't get better. Around May 2015, I got a call. I was on my way to the airport for a work trip, and she was in the hospital, and her voice sounded small. Don't be mad, she said. I'm all right now. She told me later that she had taken every single painkiller and allergy pill she could find at home to try to shut down what she saw. With my history, I already had so many problems with people taking me seriously, I didn't want to say anything, she told me. Sarah had been working for several months, cleaning 15 rooms a day. And she was doing so well that even one employee of the month, she lived alone in a small apartment with a blue couch and her own set of plates and cups. She still didn't speak a lot of English, and life felt lonely and senseless. After many ups and downs, Sarah started to take medication to help her deal with anxiety. And a psychologist she had met when she was at a shelter for children started giving her regular therapy pro bono. She got on her feet again, as she always has. Sarah has friends like her who are missing 
living on the streets somewhere in Phoenix. They come here as unaccompanied children, and while they have documents, the past, the past still haunts them. She worries about them, she once told me. They all have the same type of confusion I had, the same reasons why I stopped eating and sleeping, all of those things that cause me not to have a normal life or will to live. They have the same thing in different words. They're trying to tell the world, I need mental health, my mind is driving me crazy. It's not that they are crazy, she said. Simply that all your life you were taught to destroy, to use drugs, to see that as normal, and all of a sudden you see reality. That day, she spoke again about emptiness. But this time it wasn't a question. It was her answer. I understand what that emptiness is. It's not that they lost something, she said. It's not that they lost their mom or dad. What they lost is themselves. They reach a point they don't know who they are. As the years have gone by, my friend Sarah has continued to write her own story. I drove her quickly to the hair salon at the last minute for her wedding. We walked together silently along Tempe Town Lake. I have shared with her the wonders of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's magic realism, and she took from my hands a stepping wolf from Herman Hess. <laughs> a book I, that broke my brain and I cautioned her, you may not be the same after this book. Um, she's raised her voice politically so many times about the treatment of youth that come to this country like her. She paints, so she put her soul into paintings. And she's challenged her own beliefs. She has challenged me with her street smarts and with her own lenses. She has shown me the powerful voice that she has on her own. She's made me ask myself, how can I help without causing more hurt? I believe in reparations. That why, while we can't erase the past or ignore the past, and we can't heal for others, we can work towards a conditional love now. It's a lifetime of work, and Sarah has shown me how it can be done. And sometimes when we talk over the phone, I, I joke that it's kind of funny that how we came together. I'm a Uruguayan journalist, she's a Salvadoran that loves literature, and we're like family for each other. Um, a day not long ago after we met, she sent me a text message, and she signed it, L-K-M. And I didn't know what I mean, and I'm kind of a jokester, so I said, litros, kilos, metros. <laughs> the measurements in Latin America for liquids, weights, and distances. And we often say goodbye that way. Litros, kilos, metros. And what it really means is, I love you. That was Valeria Fernandez. In our next true story, join Pepe Solomon under a leaky roof half a world away in Dusty Traveler.
My young, dusty feet have walked many, many miles to where I am currently. It has traveled through a great wealth of rocky paths filled with broken bottles that have caused my heart to bleed on several occasions. Yet, these dusty feet have also ventured across warm, comforting sand, leading to horizons illuminated by the brightness of the morning sun. The story begins with me frantically shooting out of bed in the middle of the night like a bullet that was dispatched out of a gun held by a child. As I struggled to get a little grip on reality, I heard my mother's modulated voice rush to my eardrums from what seemed like afar. But she was right next to me. Are you okay? She asked with an accent straight from the streets of Liberia as she quickly turned towards me to confirm that all was well. I slowly nodded my head while I simultaneously rubbed the sleep out of my eyes. Then, as I opened my eyes, I noticed that my mother was up awake sitting on the right side of the bed while my sister, who was 15 at the time, lay to the left side engaged in what seemed like a peaceful sleep. My mother must have been up for at least an hour before I rocketed out of bed because she was in the middle of an operation. She had our kerosene lamp turned on and the little bit of clothes, important documents, and photos we managed to save during the years covered with large sheets of plastic. She also had the pots and pans that we used for cooking and eating placed in different areas of the room, including on our bed to collect droplets that fell freely from the ceiling. All of a sudden, it dawned on me. It had been raining the whole time my sister and I slept, and my mother was up trying to prevent the litter we had from getting drenched. You see, a typical doghouse in America is in better condition than the place where I laid my head every time the day was defeated by the night. My mother, my sister, and I lived and stored everything we owned in a room which was eight by eight feet wide. On the left side of us, two rooms of the same size lined up and three on the right. A foot and a half against our door existed another unit of six rooms with doors facing ours. Every single room was occupied by a different family and combined created a huge structure with one roof. The frame of this structure was made out of lumber and the roof plus walls were built out of waterproof cloth. Gold was easier to attain than privacy. The walls were thin to an extent where you could hear a neighbor whisper from the furthest end. There was no such thing as running water and air conditioning that was a myth. A simple decision to get, to get drinking water or water to bathe 
required a journey of a few miles by feet. The small room that I refer to as home was not responsible for providing me an escape from the busyness and intrusiveness of the world. It barely protected me from the harsh weather and danger. That became more evident every time the sky decided to cry a thousand tears. This was not a foreign experience. Every time it rained, which it did for half the year, our poorly constructed roof leaked massively. As a result, on one vibrant morning, after we were done eating a meal that was going to last us until the end of the day, my mother suggested a brief meeting as she washed her hands with a portion of the drinking water. Machera, y'all listen. Y'all know that it's been raining a lot lately, right? Uh Uh-huh. My sister and I responded sharply. Well, here's the plan. Whenever you notice that it's going to rain, make sure you hurry up and let me know so that I can cover all our important cloths and documents with the big plastic we have in the room. I don't want the rain to destroy everything we have. Y'all hear me? From that day forth, whenever any of us had even the slightest feeling that it was going to rain, we ran to our mother and meticulously covered everything that was of value with the now memorable plastic sheets. This was the best and most affordable strategy we could come up with, and we made it work for the most part. For this particular night, however, Mother Nature was playing a game that we did not see coming. This was just life for a regular 13-year-old boy living in a refugee camp located in the middle of a remote area in Guinea. I stood twiggly and slight. My elongated face, generously anointed with homemade palm nut oil, made my forehead gleam in every direction, bringing attention to the clearly defined bones that appeared on my face. Like an abstract expressionistic painting, my teeth unevenly laid on top and beside one another, patiently waiting to crawl out of my mouth whenever I attempted to smile. My head was obviously much bigger than the body that it sat on, but this was just a norm. At that point in my life, in the year 2007, it was easily noticeable that I I had accumulated about eight years of life experiences as a refugee. As the year grew older, the hunger pains became stronger. My mother, who was once healthy and in control became worried and frail. It had already been almost a year since I had attended school and my sister had been out much longer. In a refugee camp, the maximum level of free education a child was permitted to acquire was till the sixth grade and after graduation, the parents 
and guardians were responsible for anything higher. For my family and many others, that only meant that education was not an option any longer. Luckily for me, I had something else that was eager to become the captain of my attention. It was art. As I dedicated most of my time drawing and doodling on line paper that I borrowed from my messy old notebooks, my abilities matured gradually. My sister, on the other hand, invested most of her time associating with people who the community frowned upon. And as a result, a baby was introduced to our family when she was only 16. Although babies are a blessing, this was far-fetched for what reality was for us. Finally, during the early months of 2008, it was announced to my family that we were scheduled to resettle to America in a matter of a few months. As I heard these words penetrate through my ears, tears gracefully rolled down my bony cheeks as I imagined how different my life was going to become. It was a dream that was about to become a reality. Going to America basically meant going to heaven without having to die. It meant that all the hardship, hunger, abuse we had endured till that moment was about to vanish in thin air. My family and I had waited for almost five years to hear such words uttered. And it was nothing less than a blessing. Before we could put our finger on it, the news had circulated the entire camp quicker than a bonfire. And overnight, we became local celebrities. On the fourth day of August in 2008, after an entire week of traveling in a car to Conakry, the capital city of Guinea, and a plane flight that lasted for almost two days, we arrived to our final destination, Phoenix, Arizona, at the middle of the night. <laughs> Upon exiting the airport to meet our pickup, with my entire family dressed in a freeze defense jacket, we were instantly welcomed by a gust of wind that was hotter than the pits of hell. <laughs> it was completely a different world. I was amazed by everything I laid my eyes upon. I had never seen so many people with fair skin in my life. In just over a week and some days, our lives had completely changed. With the assistance of, a vi of various organizations like the Catholic Charities and Welcome to America, we now had air conditioning and a perfectly lit space with two bedrooms furnished with walls that could not be sliced open with a razor blade. We had enough food to eat and water to drink. To top it all off, we even had a stove and a refrigerator. 
In a few months after my mother started working and my sister and I went to high school, the assistance ended. Shortly after, I started to notice that America was not the heaven that I once thought it was. In fact, we were at the bare bottom of the food chain. And after living here for almost a decade, I have finally realized that only I can truly rescue myself. All my life, I have survived. But now, I do not want to survive anymore. I want to thrive. That was Pepe Solomon. Closing out this episode, we have Julia Fournier, who takes us on another journey, this time through the lives of her twin sons in Trippin. One. Life with my sons has had an edge to it from the moment we brought them home at the age of six months in a mustard yellow Volvo station wagon without AC on a sweltering summer day. Peeling off their clothes the moment we walked in the house and feeling like we had just robbed a baby bank, we couldn't wait to see them naked for the first time. Dark blue-gray marks covered their backs and backsides. Oh my God, I gasped, looking at their little bodies in horror. No wonder she, referring to the sweet woman who had fostered them from the time they were five weeks old, put so many clothes on them. She's been beating the shit out of our babies. The doctor returned my call immediately. Despite reading pages of research and testimony about transracial adoption, I had never heard of Mongolian spots, the birthmarks many dark-skinned children are born with that fade with time. Day one of motherhood, I'd already fumbled. Two, on a subway platform in New York City, I'm standing behind my seven-year-old sons. They are dressed smartly in navy blue pea coats and bright coordinating striped scarves. We are going to Rockefeller Center to skate on the last day the rink is open until next winter. Two white women next to us are pointing at my boys and discussing how terrible it is for those people to let their kids just walk about the city unaccompanied. As the train comes into the station, I reach over my son's shoulders and pull them close to me. I look to my left as the women's mouths make perfect O's. Three, they seem more intuitive than other children. From an early age, they pick up all my worries even though I am trying to hide them. They notice when people, perfect strangers, are upset and bring it to my attention. For several years, we spend part of our summer vacation in Orange County, where my sister lives, and home to the happiest place on earth. Going to Disneyland is a challenge for any family. For me, it is torture. Standing in line with my young, active children for hours on end for just a few moments of fun is exhausting. Despite this, my sons have let me know that Disneyland is part of the California vacation bargain, and our plan on this day is to open and close the place. We arrive before the gates open, hoping to get in a few rides before the long lines form. I've got everything in one backpack, jackets, snacks, phone, water, wallet, medication, and Game Boys for the long waits. We land in front of the Indiana Jones Adventure ride first. It is new to us, and there's no line. We get right in and note the warning signs and recorded messages about stowing belongings securely. 
Just as recommended, the pack goes right into one of the netted compartments inside the car. At some point into the three minute, 25 second ride, the backpack shoots right out of the vehicle and disappears. Walking up to the closest cast member, I inform her of what's happened. I know exactly where it flew out, I tell her smiling, right by the giant cobra. Debbie, name badge pinned to her khaki jumpsuit, lets me know there's no problem. They will certainly be able to get my property for me just as soon as the park closes that evening at midnight. It is now approximately 10.20 a.m., so I ask Debbie to please speak to our supervisor. But Debbie is the supervisor. So great, I say, panic rising. What do I do with my eight-year-olds for 14 hours without money? Debbie reminds me about the clear warnings regarding stowing belongings properly. It's just her Disney way of saying, you're bad, not ours. <laughs> However, she does let me know that the park is able to provide us with food vouchers for the entire day. Debbie and I go back and forth for a good little bit. My phone, the keys to the car. I feel trapped. My sons are looking up at us following the conversation. I am trying not to lose my shit, but the momentum is building. I hear a sound to my left and look over. Miguel is holding his chest and appears to be having difficulty breathing, an asthma attack. I look over at Debbie. Oh, crap, his medication is in the bag. Debbie leaves quickly, saying she'll see what she can do. Minutes later, she's returned and handing us the pack. We grab hands and turn to go. I look down at Miguel and ask if he needs the inhaler. He smiles and shakes his head no. <laughs> we break just long enough to high five. Four, the profanity Yelling and name-calling has reached record levels. We have just arrived in Payson. Through the windshield, it's a beautiful summer day. Blue sky, puffy white clouds, and green spear trees must look lovely to someone in another car traveling down this same road. I cannot drive safely anymore. Miguel, I know you are upset. We're not home yet. You want to see your friends, but I can't drive if you don't calm down. Fuck you, fuck you, bitch, he spits from the third seat back. I've got better things to do than sit here in this stupid car with you bitches. The vitriol goes on and on. My other son can't take it anymore. He's already told his brother to, brother to stop tripping and is now telling him to shut up, shut up, shut the fuck up. I think we are all telling him to shut the fuck up at this point. Miguel starts pulling shoes out of his duffel bag and throwing them through the van, hitting us, hitting the windshield. I execute a sudden fast and furious move into a giant parking lot and stop. Everyone inside simultaneously ejects in a sort of clown car jack-in-the-box pop-out. The yelling continues in the parking lot. My two sons are throwing punches at each other. Their dad and I are asking them to stop, stop, please stop. We try to break it up by getting in the middle, but this just makes things worse. Miguel starts punching harder and faster. Two women in two different cars stop, get out, and threaten to call the police. Do it, we all say. <laughs> they get back in their cars and drive away. 
Yeah, that's what I thought, Miguel says. I escaped this hell by inventing a scenario in my head, imagining that all across the country, other families must be experiencing this same kind of end-of-vacation meltdown, and the police dispatch must be so overwhelmed with calls that no one will come to arrest my sons in this parking lot. <laughs> Creating a space for this in my brain gives me a second to think of a way out. I grab my purse and start to walk away. Where are you going, Marco asks. She's running away like a little bitch, spits Miguel. I'm going over to Subway, actually. Want anything? I ask, hoping to change the momentum of this situation. Finally, finally, you have a good idea, Miguel says in a normal tone. Five. Who are you laughing at? It was a cop on the passenger side of a cruiser marked Oakland, snarling at, at my sons as they attempt to legally use the crosswalk. Marco and Miguel look at each other and then over their shoulders like there might be someone else the officer is speaking to behind them. Yanked from their walking yuck fest, repeating lines from super troopers, has, has been their custom for the past few weeks. They look back at the cop again, shrug their shoulders while pointing at themselves. Yeah, you too, the cop says, gesturing at them with two fingers, and reaches out the window to put his cup on the roof of the car like he's getting ready to get out. My sons, twin teens, turn around and look at me, and I see panic. Catching up after being about a half a block back, I make eye contact with the cop, smile and say, what's the problem, officer? And all of a sudden, the cops have somewhere else to go. They start to take off, and the cup falls off the car and rolls onto the street, spilling coffee down the back of the cruiser. They tried real hard not to, but my sons crap, crack up. This could already have been a scene from Super Troopers, but then Marco kills it by saying, meow, look what they did. <laughs> Six. I have 120 quarters, a pack of Newports, and my license in a clear bag. We have a long, satisfying hug, play cards, tell stories, and eat vending machine food for four hours. It's the first time I've seen him since his arrest for probation violation. Despite the fact that I correctly set the GPS for Whetstone Correctional Institution, where Miguel will spend the next 18 months, I mistakenly stopped at two other prisons on the way down. On this day, my 7,768th day of motherhood, I fumble, but I also win. I wait until I reach the parking lot to cry. That was Julia Fournier. And that's it for this episode of the Barflies podcast. Special thanks to my co-curator, Katie Bravo, podcast producer, Sarah Ventry, Charlie Levy, David Maroney, and the rest of the folks at Valley Bar, and to Calexico for our theme music. Learn more about Barflies at barflies.org.